Virtually everybody I know has trouble sleeping, myself included. I fall into that same category. How about you? Are racing thoughts overtaking your night of sleep? Are you tired of not being able to sleep? Do you have trouble falling asleep or staying asleep? If the answer is yes, you need to try Ebb. If you have tried everything from pills to pillows with little success, then it's really time to try Ebb. You see, Ebb is the first and only wearable, drug-free solution that targets the root cause of sleeplessness. It's the racing thoughts. Ebb applies precise and continuous cooling to the forehead, which calms your mind. And it's clinically validated. Four out of five users report falling asleep faster and improving overall sleep quality. And Ebb allows people suffering from sleeplessness to drift more comfortably into a deeper, more restorative sleep. Ebb Sleep is designed to work with your natural sleep-wake rhythms. It allows you to get into that deep sleep more quickly. It's logical, right? I'm telling you, it's a real issue. So many people I know do have trouble sleeping. You want to make sure you've got the energy to do the things that you love once again, and you need the sleep in order to do them. Ebb's natural solution has no morning side effects, and it allows you to get back to your peak performance. Right now, you can try Ebb risk-free for 60 nights to confirm that it is the solution that you've been looking for. Go to tryebb.com slash Rome. I'll spell it for you now. T-R-Y-E-B-B, T-R-Y-E-B-B dot com slash Rome, tryeb.com slash Rome, order today, get the sleep that you need and that you deserve. I'm not a cynic and I'm not a negative thinker, but I think human nature is you do think about the ones that, that, that got away. And the 18-1 season, there's not a week that goes by that that doesn't come to my mind and probably maybe even more often than that. When you're sitting at 18 and 0 and on the threshold of history again we didn't lose the super bowl we didn't lose a game we lost history hey now what's going on what's cracking welcome to yet another episode of the Jim Rome podcast i am so hyped on this we have got a tremendous pod for you this week we ran into our guest back in Miami during Super Bowl week, and I had a great sit-down with him, but I knew it was not enough time, not enough real estate. I knew that I had to bring Scott Pioli back for our side hustle, and thankfully he said yes. He is one of the best to ever do it in the NFL. He spent 27 years in the league as an executive. He was an executive of the year five different times. He has three Super Bowl rings to his name. He is currently an NFL analyst with CBS Sports, and now forever will be known as the star of Ep 118 of the Jim Rome podcast, and it gets started right now. Now, Scott, it's so good to run you down. It was great to see you at Super Bowl, and I knew that we needed to spend more time in this platform. So let me just really quickly ask you, you've had such an amazing football life. You continue to do so. Growing up, you were a good athlete. You played other sports. You were a really good baseball player. So what did you love so much about football, and how did that end up being your life's calling, at least professionally? Well, I think with football, what made it more enjoyable to me, unfortunately, Fortunately or unfortunately, Jim, I loved the physical contact. I, I really enjoyed um, the physical contact of football. I enjoyed the team component. In baseball, it felt, even though you were a team winning and losing games, the whole idea of a one-on-one matchup being in, in the batter's box against one pitcher, you know, it, it just didn't feel as much of a team element. There was something about football from the time that I was a kid that I loved the idea of, 
depending on other people and other people depending on me in order for a play to work or uh, I, I like defense a lot more. So I enjoy the idea of working together with a group of people to try to achieve something. And, and that part of football always attracted uh, attracted me more than baseball. Plus in baseball, Jim, I couldn't hit the curve. I don't know if you were any good at hitting the curve. No. I certainly couldn't do it. So I, I was better off at hitting people than I was hitting the curve. <laughs> exactly. No, I was not good at hitting the curve. Not at all. So now obviously, Scott, you, you have a long-time connection to Bill Belichick, both personally and professionally. How and when did the two of you first meet? Yeah, Jim, it, it's a crazy story. So um, I met Bill, uh, you know, outside. We, we met as friends, so to speak. I was uh, I was a sophomore in college, and when I would go back to New York to, to my parents' place, it was before I spent my last couple of summers uh, working out and training, you know, at, at college. But I would go back to my hometown and, and work in bars at night, and then I would have nothing to do with my afternoons. And I loved football so much. I grew up a Giants fan. I would drive down to the New York Giants training camp and watch practices. And I was one of those weird kids or weird young people who kept notes of drills and players because I was a college player at the time. And I was trying to find every edge possible to become a better player and become better at my craft. And it's something I loved. So I would write down drills and, and, and listen to what coaches were doing because you could be close to practice back then. And while I was doing that, my, my best friend, a guy by the name of Matt Spencer from my hometown, his college girlfriend was working the New York Giants training camp as one of those security people, you know, and have to wear the security uniform. And, and she just so happened to be working in and around the coach's office. She had cultivated this relationship with, with Bill and, and some of the, oh, well, actually with all the coaches. And one day when I was down there at practice, I was visiting with her, and she said she wanted to choose me to meet a Bill. He, she introduced me to him, and Bill and I got into this conversation. And, and I remember, like it was yesterday, and this was probably, I think, back in in 85 or 86. It was before they had won a world championship. And Bill was like, so you drive down here from your hometown every day? And I'm like, yeah. I said, well, you know, whenever I have the time, he's like, what do you get out of practice? And was, you know, we're just having a conversation. I said, well, I write these notes. And I showed him what I was writing down. He says, that's like an hour and a half drive each way, isn't it? And I said, yeah. He said, well, listen, would you ever want to spend the night and maybe you could, you know, Al Groh and I swear, uh, share this suite. You could stay out in the common area on the couch. This way you don't have to do the drive. And, you know, I'll talk to Parcells and see if I could allow you to sit in meetings and watch tape. And Incredible. You can watch all the tape and do all it, – it was really – Jim, I'll tell you, it, it's unbelievable because you, you think about – you think about that moment and how fortuitous it was um, and by just having this access and this incidental contact. Um, but, but the other thing, Jim, that, that, that's important to me in the story and, and understanding is I remember thinking about it, that here's Bill. He's a defensive coordinator in the New York Giants. They're a pretty darn good football at that time against right before they win the Super Bowl. And here he meets this young college guy that he sees loves football, he's got absolutely nothing to gain from cultivating that relationship at all. All he saw was a guy who loved football, who was paying attention, who was taking notes, and I've never really asked him why he did what he did, but he reached out to this young guy that loved football and was passionate about football, and that's when the relationship started. And from there, it blossomed. I mean, you know, I'm still two more years in college, and 
Then I go on to Syracuse to be a graduate assistant coach, and Bill and I stayed in touch. Um, I actually remember when I was at Syracuse for the 88 and 89 seasons, that was back when coaches um, did a lot of college scouting also at the end of their season. And the Giants, as you remember, Jim, were, they were, you know, they did stuff uh, the old school way. So their coaches were very involved in their evaluations. Sure. And one of the things I did was I shared all of my notes on players because that was one of my jobs as the offensive line GA was to evaluate players for the upcoming scouting, um, for the for the upcoming opponent scouting report. And I shared that information with Bill, and that's kind of where it, it really grew to a different level. That is a really astonishing story, Scott. So you have it's this weird, di- isn't it? Jim? It's amazing. No, no, it's it's amazing. I love it, and I don't know. I mean, I don't want to go too sidebar, but I've always said this, Scott. Like back in the day, I, I did similar things in my line of work that seem crazy now, but I would do the same type of thing, and it used to bother me, Scott, that I would not get letters and then emails and anything electronic from people saying, "Hey, can I follow you around? Can I hang out with you? Can I see what you do?" I don't know why I didn't get those letters, but it used to bother me that I didn't get those letters. Because I always wrote yeah. those letters. Jim, you are nailing it. I can understand and relate. Absolutely. And for a long time, um, because it, it, it doesn't, it takes a, honestly, it takes, Jim, a humility to when you're, you were a young person, when I was a young person, to, to, you know, to humble yourself to ask for that kind of help, right? Because if, if you're going to be in either one of our industries, you have to humble yourself a little bit. And then... You know, when you, like you said, when you ascended to the level, you were looking for those people to be as hungry. It's hungry, but it's also a passion, right, Jim? That I'm assuming you had an incredible passion for what you did, and you knew that if you found people like that, they would be equally passionate. Right. 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 Where are these people? I, I, I didn't understand it then. <laughs> I don't understand it now, but you very clearly had it, Scott. And then Belichick recognized that in you. I'm curious. So you finally do come together, and he hires you to work with him with the Browns. But I'm curious, what did he say to you when he hired yeah. you? What did he hire you to do with Cleveland? Well, that's a great story. Just to back up, so after my two years at Syracuse, I went on to Murray State University to be the offensive line coach for two seasons. So I spent two times you know, – a New York guy um, and a Northeastern heading to Murray, Kentucky was a, a little bit different mm, existence. Right. And Bill and I stayed in touch. It was back in the day when we actually wrote letters. I still have some letters that Bill wrote me, you know, postcards he sent me from funny places that he was. And I, um, again, we stayed in touch. And then when I was in my second year at Murray State, that was when he got the head job at the Browns. And I had just literally signed a contract to stay at Murray State, had just finished the signing date for kids. Bill said, you know, he said, hey, I told you if I ever get a head job, you know, come on, you know, I would want you to be with me. And I was in this weird place because I had just committed to this extension, had committed to a bunch of these kids, and there was something weird about leaving. Bill wasn't sure if he was going to be able to get as many entry-level positions in 90. Uh, that was in 91. So we said, hey, let's talk again at the end of the year. So the next year, I actually had met um, – Vinny Serrato, who was now at the 49ers, and I had talked to Vinny and met him. Uh, I don't even remember where we, we met. He was looking for an entry-level per- person, he and Dwight Clark, and they talked about wanting to hire me. And they asked me about an interview. I said, yeah, we'll do it. Two days later, I get this call from Bill down in Murray, Kentucky, and in typical Bill fashion, he's like, what the F are you doing? <laughs> you know? right. what, what's going on here? I told you I'd bring you up. 
says, I want you to cancel the interview and come up here. I've got a job for you. And I just said, Bill, I, you know, I can't do that right now. How about I go from San Francisco to Cleveland and interview back to back? He's like, absolutely. So this gets to, to your question. When I get there, he looks at me and we, I have this kind of interview with um, Dom Neely, who's the director of the college scouting at that point in time, Mike Lombardi, who's the, uh, I think he was the director of player personnel. And then I met with Bill and Bill says to me, he says, listen, I don't know what the job is. I don't know what the title is. I don't know what all the duties are. I have no idea what the salary is. I don't think I have much money. Go back to the hotel tonight, and here's all you need to know. I'm offering you a job. I don't have any of that information. You come back and tell me tomorrow whether you're interested. Wow. When do I start? And I was, well, I, I was about to answer, and he kind of said, talk to me tomorrow. And, and you know, that's part of Bill. And that was one of the first lessons I learned in, uh, about being around Bill in a work environment is don't be impulsive, be thoughtful. And it was in, in that moment, because he kept me from speaking at that moment, the next morning I couldn't get there early enough, and, and I get in, and he says, he says, well, did you think about it? I said, Bill, I'm all in. He says, well, listen, I still don't know the title. I still don't know the salary. I still don't know all of what you're going to be doing. And this, to answer your question, one of the things that he said to me, Jim, was, listen, Scott, I'm going to bring you in here, and you're going to work. And the more you can do, the more you can do. He goes, just remember that. And I said, Bill, I'm all in. And I remember thinking, you know, it was kind of like uh, in the more cowbell skit when, you know, um, they say, you know, I wear a lot, I, you're going to get a lot of gold records. And it's like, what does that mean? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know what that like, what does that mean? Absolutely. I, I love that. No, no, I love that. The more you can do, the more, the you, more can you can do. In fact, I've been and trying to tell you... my guys, Scott, I've been trying to tell my guys the same exact thing now for years. Not quite like that, but that's exactly what I've been trying to say to my guys. Yeah. Did you take that to heart when he told you that? Absolutely, because as I processed it, what it meant to me he says, "Hey, listen, either you're in or you're not. And if you're in, you know you're gonna. What I'm gonna reward you with is not gonna be financial. Every time you do a job well, I'm gonna give you more work. Right. And each time you get more work, yeah, it, it becomes more responsibility. You're gonna grow. You're gonna learn. And that's what he meant in that moment. And Jim, you know, I'm I'm this young mid twenties guy with. All I want to do is work and learn. And he looks at me and says, and by the way, I found out how much money I got. He goes, and I said, you know, I told him I'm in. He goes, oh, and by the way, I can only pay you 16 grand. Mm. And this is 1992. This is, you know, this isn't 19, you know, 1970. And I just, and I didn't flinch. I'm like, okay, if that's what it is, that's what, let, let's go. And he just smiled. And um, from that moment on, he had me doing stuff in scouting, he had me stuff doing in quality control. I was doing stuff mostly in scouting, but a little stuff here and there helping in coaching because I had been a coach prior to that. And it was great because I was getting this cross training because there are different skills and, you know, not all coaches are good evaluators and not all good evaluators can coach. There are different skills. Now, everyone has to know football and know football players but there is nuance in the two jobs. And, and I found out quickly that I was better in the evaluation part than I was the coaching part. I was going to say, Scott, who, who determined that first? Did you or did Belichick realize that you were more effective evaluating than coaching? 
No, Jim, honestly, I think I started to realize that when I was still coaching at Murray State, because here's what I knew I was good at. Um, I knew that I was good day-to-day with the players. I could coach. I knew technique. I knew fundamentals. I knew schemes. And I could teach those things all day long to the kids. I could motivate kids. I could motivate the players. And I could also recruit very well. In terms of recruiting, I could evaluate well to recruit good players. One time, one of the things I realized, Jim, was when it came to game plan day, and I had to give significant input into game planning and or have an idea during the game strategically what was a good play to call, Jim, I was terrible at it. Mm. I was terrible at it. And, and, and I felt like I was useless to the staff in that sense. Now, everyone has a role. Everyone has a job. I got that. But so as I got to the NFL, I really understood that I was a better evaluator. I was better at seeing big picture things. I was better at reading people than I was X's and O's and, again, game planning and calling plays. So I realized that on my own. And then what I didn't realize when I got to the NFL, that there's this entire job and life that you can have that has to do with evaluating players. And that's that was a home run for me. Seems to me, Scott, you evaluated yourself and you made that decision and then you found that whole life. And then, of course, you're working and you're growing and you're grinding and you're learning. And then in 1999, you get married and your wife's father is none other than Bill Parcells. But it just My so happens... Right? It just so happens the Belichick situation with the Jets blows up at the end of that same year. So he goes to the Pats. He sends a fax to your father-in-law saying he wants to bring you with him. I mean, Scott, are you kidding me about that? Family versus your guy. What was that like? How did you process that? You know, um, initially it was really difficult because it it wasn't supposed to work out that way. Right? Bill and I had talked as friends um, when we were working together, even after the Cleveland thing had had gone away, I went to the Ravens, and then we spent three years together at the Jets' offices right next to each other, and we always talked about we always talked about what if, right? We talked we talked about philosophy of team building, of player evaluation, of the what it would look like and what it could look like. And inside, you know, you know, Bill was never one to talk about the future too much and to speculate and project. But we, there was this conversation that, hey, if it ever happens, boy, it would be, we would be a good team. Now, it wasn't supposed to work out this way, Jim. You know, so Belichick resigns the day after. By the time, you know, the, the Crafts and Belichick and Parcells and the Jets, and they all get done fighting, and the Belichick, you know, becomes the head coach of the Patriots. I, it, it was supposed to be Bill and I going somewhere with, with some other people, but under these circumstances, I was no longer sure. But sure enough, within a couple of hours of that deal getting done, Belichick sends the fax over to Parcells. And I found out that night when I got home, and uh, my wife answered the phone, and it was her dad. And I kind of heard how she was talking to, to her dad. And uh, I picked up the phone, and I got an earful um, because, you know, you know what's going on here? And I truthfully and truly did not know because things had gotten so ugly that Bill and I had to separate from conversations for a few days. And uh, sure enough, Bill had asked for permission. And and I'll say this, uh, to this day, I'm so thankful and grateful to um, a number of people involved in that initial mess. 
starting with with Parcells because he, um, he, I was under contract. He could have made life very difficult. He understood he was angry at Bill. They were not friends at that point in time. They were friends that were in a fight, I guess. And he he told me that I could do what I wanted, but I responded by telling him I'm going to do what you want me to do. And, you know, that I'm not going to disrespect him or the situation or family allegiances. And he took a deep breath and told me, he said, you know what, that's a better job. That's your guy. Um, and it's, it's a better job with more, more upside. You know, you're going to be doing more than just being the pro personnel director like you are here at the Jets. And he compartmentalized his um, frustration, anger, the battle that he was in to help me do the right thing because it was a good career move for me. Um, you know, but it was also a little bit awkward. You have to remember when I arrived, you know, the crafts realized that, okay, you know, Bill and I are boys, but Oh, by the way, Robert Kraft sees me as Parcell's son-in-law, even though that, you know, my wife and I hadn't even been married a year. It had been a matter of months. Wow. So I'm telling you, Jim, I will never write a book, but, man, there's a story there. <laughs> it's incredible. I mean, it really is amazing, Scott. And I understand that you can only go so far and you can only share so much, but I, I'm so fascinated by both of these brilliant football men, Parcells and Belichick, two yeah. of the best to ever do it, two very different guys, but if anybody can speak to it, you can. Like, how are they similar and how are they different? Mm, I, I would say that the, the, the most, what is most similar are they love the game of football. They love the game. They love the history. They love football in its purest um, and most basic elements. They are football guys. They love the game and they respect the game. And that sounds like, oh, yeah, everybody does. And I'll tell you, Jim, that's not true. Hmm. Not everyone in the game of football or in the business of football truly loves and respects the game. They respect the people that came before them. So that puts them at a, a level of of why they got along. They're both, they're both exceedingly, I, I don't like the word genius, but they are brilliant they are, though. people. Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 in, in, their, in, their, in their work area, they are. They, they're, and they're brilliant, Jim. And they're, um, they're competitive. They're, they're, um, they, they're also similar in the sense that the people that you see on a day-to-day basic in a uh, basic sense in the public eye they are different people away from the spotlight and away from the football life noise. Um, and they're very different people than what the public sees. And I mean that in a good way. No, um, yeah, they're, and again, they're different, different personalities. They like different things, but they're not, um, Hey, you know what, Jim, I'm, and again, I hope this isn't, you know, inappropriate, but Jim, I'm sure that the person that Jim Rome is that everyone hears and sees and listens to is a different person in, in your private life. And, and I think sometimes people forget that people in the public spotlight are human beings too. And, um, there's a job to do sometimes. And sometimes when you have a job to do, you, you have to make, you know, be put in some difficult circumstances. I think so, that's fair. I think that's fair. I, I would respond to that, Scott, by saying that 
you know, you know this as well as anybody, that if you're not truly authentic in what I do, and even to a certain extent with what you do right now on the other side with the media, then it would not work. I could never have had the run of the career I've had if I were not authentic. But at the same time, I while I say what I mean, and I mean what I say, and I think about what I say before I say it, I do understand, and I figured this out early on, there is a show element to this. So I do not yeah. go home and talk smack to my wife and to my kids and rant and rave while I'm at home all day long. But but I am I am what I appear, and what you see is what you get. But yes, there is a show element to this. Absolutely, and Jim, and I don't mean to be too corny because I know that this is a show that everyone's listening to. Jim, you and I met a hundred years ago, and I saw you on air, and then I talked to you off air. We had a conversation, and that was one of those moments. I'm like, and I understand, right? There's an entertainment value, just, and sometimes it's entertainment, but it's also you have to motivate people to get in in a certain direction just like coaches do and or to get a certain response or an action or a reaction so um but you're right i I don't ever know you as having not been authentic so that that's a part of them too that i think that there's a private side of them um that is that is very very likable and and not everyone gets to see that. I get that. I, I don't know exactly what it is because I don't see that side, but I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> so, Scott, you know, we got a few moments still before you go, and I know you've got some other business. Let me ask you about Tom Brady. It seems to me, correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, but if he lasts until the 199th pick overall, maybe when you saw him in college you liked what you saw, but you didn't necessarily think there was anything extremely unusual or unique about him per se or now look I understand that you had three quarterbacks already you did not want to use a draft pick on a fourth but he did last until the sixth round what I am curious about when you did get him into your building how long did it take for you to realize he really was different um we realized it in a hurry Jim and it was within a matter of weeks and months um because the truth is you know People can say what they they want or have their version of history. The truth is we had three quarterbacks on the roster. Once we got him in that building, we realized there was something unique about him. We couldn't exactly put our finger on it. Did we ever think it was going to get that he was going to be what he became? No, that, that wouldn't be true or accurate. But here's the fact, Jim, is we went into that next season, the 2001, uh, I mean the 2000 season, his rookie season, And at one point in time, when we were rebuilding that thing in New England, we had cap troubles, and we also had a number of players that we just didn't think were going to fit the system. There was a point in time, Jim, where we cut down from the 53-man roster, and we're sitting there with only 51 players on our roster because we only wanted people that were going to be patriots and be what we were about. And of those 51 players, we still kept four quarterbacks. I can't remember the last time. I would have to ask them. I cannot remember the last time that any team kept four quarterbacks on the active roster. Um, and that was 20 years ago. And I know that that, that even teams doing that predate that. I only give that, that, that example and tell that story, Jim, because we realized pretty quickly that we had a guy that we thought was going to be a good starting quarterback did we think he would have the special qualities in order, you know, to be the guy that would play 20 years and win six Super Bowls? No way. We just knew that we had something special that was extremely developable. If that is a word, if it's not, Jim, we're going to make it up right here. But he, I'm not uh, the grammar police. You're okay. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, he gets it, Jim, and, and we, knew he, he, we knew he got it at the time. Now, Scott, you tweeted something to this effect in early January, but let me put it to you in the form of a question. As Tom Brady goes about making his decision about where he wants to play, does he owe anybody outside of himself and his family anything at all? No, he doesn't. He doesn't. And, and again, with all due respect to all Patriots fans, to the Patriots franchise, to the Kraft, to Bill, um, no one in that group owes anyone anything because I think that they've superseded. And, and talking about Tom specifically, he has given everything that his body and mind possibly could. Along with that, he brought six world championships. He only needs to answer to himself, his, you know, his family, his parents, his immediate family and, and Giselle and his children. There's, um, he has given, and, and he has rightfully received um, what he needs is, is to be happy. And, you know, I feel that same way about, you know, Bill. You know, Bill has given his everything to that, and everyone has been rewarded. The fan base has been rewarded. Um, the crafts have been rewarded. The league has. The game has. There's, there's, no one in that group owes anyone anything, in my opinion, at this point in time. So now, Scott, I mentioned at the very top that you've had an amazing football life, in your private moments, I'm curious, what do you think about more, the three Super Bowls that you won or the two that you didn't? Uh, unfortunately, and this is, and I don't know if this is a healthy thing or not, Jimmy, I feel like you're my therapist right now. Um, I, I, um, I unfortunately think about the two losses more often. Um, I think about the first win, often because it was so special, so unexpected, and the group of people. But I, I think about the two losses. You know, people always people talk about the 28-3 to loss when I was with the Falcons and losing to the Patriots and how awful that was, you know, being down that many points. But i got to tell you, Jim, when people ask me which, worse, which loss was worse, there's, you know, truly no comparison. When you're sitting at 18-0 and on the threshold of history. Again, we didn't lose the Super Bowl. We didn't lose a game. We lost history. And um, and, I, and I'll tell you, Jim, I also think about the 1998 AFC Championship when I was with the Jets and, and we lost to the Denver Broncos. I think about the AFC Championship that we we lost to the the Indianapolis Colts when we were up, to, I think it was 21-3 to at the halftime. Uh, of that game, and we had a bunch of players hurt and got sick. That's the year that the Colts won their first Super Bowl. Unfortunately, I, I, and 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 I'm not a cynic and I'm not a negative thinker, but I think human nature is you do think about the ones that that, that got away. And the 18 and one season, um, there's not a week that goes by that that doesn't come to my mind, and probably maybe even more often than that. It seems to me, Scott, I think that you're, you're very unique as an individual and as a thinker, but I don't think that's unusual. I can't tell you how many athletes and coaches I've spoken to over the years that will tell you exactly that. Now, I think that those games— That makes games, me feel better, Jim. Thank no, no, you. No, I mean that sincerely. <laughs> I think that like those losses, of course, were in very dramatic fashion, as you point out, a 28-3 to lead, a chance to make history. But the yeah. fact is that your mind continues to go back to the tough beats as opposed to the big wins. Why, why is the intensity of a tough loss greater— than the euphoria of a great win. I I, I don't know. Uh, maybe it's warped thinking because because you're in it to win it, and 
there's, I, it's, Jim, it's, that's a really difficult question. I go back to even the times when we won that first Super Bowl. Bill and I are back on the plane, and we realize that we're five to six weeks behind everyone else, right. and we're in panic mode, and we want, we're not worried. Okay, that was great. That was wonderful, but now we've got to prove it's not a fluke. We don't make the playoffs the next year. We win the second one in three years the following year, and it's like, okay, we won two in three years, but we've got, we keep trying to prove I mean, if you're a competitor, you go into things to win, and you obsess over winning, and the the losing part just rips your guts out. It's, you know, uh, uh, I remember listening to Parcells talk about how this game is like a drug, and it is in some of the best and worst ways. And, you know, when you hear people that are addicts talk about the euphoria and how fleeting it is, um when they're high, you know, it's, it, this is a different kind of high. The euphoria is there. It's great. But then you need the next fix of victory. And the loss is anything but euphoria. And you remember and you're trying to avoid the feelings of the depths rather than and get to the feeling of euphoria. And Jim, I don't know if that makes any sense. It does. No, no, it does. It does. In fact, I want to ask and you, it, Scott, it, yeah, because I was, how about me. you when you have a great show? Well, like, can I ask you, I, I know this is you interviewing me, but how do you feel when you have a killer show, but then when you have, you know, a clunker? Yeah, exactly. The, the great no, the it's 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 similar, except the highs and lows are not the same as what you're talking about. Because I feel like in other aspects of my life, I have experienced the highs and lows. In fact, in a way, it's kind of strange. But if you ever spend any time with Bill Parcells at the racetrack, and you can understand <laughs> his, you know, his passion for that, some of Scott, the greatest and most depressing moments of my entire life have been at the racetrack, and I haven't felt those highs and lows at work. But to answer your question about the show, the show is interesting in that I go back to zero every single day. So no matter how good a show is, I have to prove it again the next day. That's the exactly. bad news. The good news is no matter how bad the show is, I have a chance to prove it again the next day. But I reset every single day. I go back to zero every single day. You're talking about incredible highs and lows. Like, like you have other things that you're super passionate about that I'm going to ask you about before I cut you loose in a couple of minutes. But when you're not mm -hmm. in that thing the way you were then, the way you are right now, do you miss that drug? Uh, some days, yes. I, I I I miss the you know what I miss is I miss the camaraderie mm -hmm. I miss the teamwork part I miss the um, the euphoria of a win I do not miss the low of defeat um, because that that's you know that that shouldn't be it shouldn't affect my personality but it does uh, I'm an awful loser and and that's not healthy do I miss it yes I miss it. Um, but I'm, I've, uh, what happens, I think, when you get older also is you find um, you have this broader perspective of things. Um, you know, being a father of a 16-year-old daughter and my, my wife and I being parents, the energy that I get out of that and that relationship um, and that family feeling um, helps fill what I think or thought was a void in the competition world. So you just find different things that, that, that make you happy in life. Um, I, I don't know if that explains it, but I, 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 are there elements that I missed? Yes, and there's, yes, there's some elements that I don't miss at all. It does explain that. So a last thought, and when you and I came together, we talked about your passion for providing opportunities to those who deserve it. I'm amazed that in a business that can be so cutthroat 
and so ruthless, and a lot of businesses are, but certainly the NFL can be that. You have dedicated yourself to promoting racial equality, gender equality, and in fact, inclusion of all kinds. Let me just ask you, for those who do not know the story, the story of you and 49ers coach Katie Sowers is really something. For those who do not know, how did you first meet Katie? Um, Katie uh, was, when we when I was in Kansas City, or my family and I were in Kansas City, I was a general manager. Katie was our daughter's fifth grade basketball coach. Uh, in a, It was a school league outside of school for elementary uh, for elementary for her elementary school and Katie was her uh, her coach and Katie talked to me on a daily basis or every time I saw her she wanted to talk a little bit of football she was a football player herself we cultivated this relationship and friendship and she became a dear friend of the family of my uh, my wife and myself and our daughter and we just always kept in touch and I mentored her and 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 taught her and was trying to find an access point for her to get an opportunity and then finally in 2016, when I was with the Atlanta Falcons, you know, I had been there for a year and had been trying to get her in. And I was able to get her, you know, an access point as a four-week coaching intern as part of our Bill Walsh uh, Diversity Coaching Fellowship because that was one of the one of the jobs that I had there was to fill our coaching staff, um, you know, with people that were a part of the program. And when she came in, she worked with us for four to five weeks as a coaching intern, and then it was over. But then I saw what a great job she had done, and um, I had to hire a seasonal intern for the scouting department, which normally came from our uh, scouting department interns during training camp. But Katie was the best, hardest-working, most qualified, knowledgeable football person that we had as an intern and I offered her that job and she came to work with us for the next 10 months. And that's how it all got started. And, you know, Jim, and that's sometimes, you know, it's interesting as I'm sitting here, I'm kind of pausing because I'm thinking about bringing this conversation, you know, full circle. You, you talked about how did I meet Bill Belichick and how did I get my opportunity to begin my journey? Well, you know, Based on my life and, and, and where I came from, I wasn't supposed to be one of those people to get an opportunity, right? Where I came from, what I did, not having connections, not having family involved, you know, I was, uh, you know, I'm, I wasn't supposed, I was not supposed to get where I was supposed to go. I've always kept that in the back of my mind in doing this work my entire life. Katie Sowers, all that she needed was an opportunity and proximity and mentoring and people that looked out for her. And then she had to go do the work and she did it and she kicked its butt. And that's why she's in the national football league now because of the work that she did. She just needed an access point. And I know you've got a passion for that sort of mentorship and that is a perfect way to end it. Although I could do this for another hour or more. <laughs> that is full circle. Scott, I so appreciate that. I knew that when you and I came back together at Super Bowl, I appreciated that time so much, but I knew we needed a little bit more. Thank you so much for making yeah. time for the podcast. It's so good to visit with you, Scott. I really do appreciate your time. No, Jim, thank you very much for, for, allowing me to spend time with you and you're right i could do this forever and 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 i really appreciate it and and thank you for allowing me to be a part of your show are you craving some protein after a good workout i know i am in fact every single day this time do not make a shake do not eat a bar grab a bag of beef jerky from old trapper wild trapper 
because Old Trapper beef jerky is tasty, it's tender, it's made with real strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a real wood fire. Old Trapper is a family-owned business that takes smoked beef extremely seriously. You can taste it in every single bite. Like, who wants that dried, rough beef in a bag? Nobody. That's who. It's like eating an old shoe. Old Trapper is the real deal. It comes in four amazing flavors. Old Fashioned is sweetened with a touch of brown sugar goodness, teriyaki, peppered, and hot and spicy. So next time you want a great protein, an energy snack that you can have anytime, anywhere, grab some Old Trapper beef jerky. Look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality you're buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. If you don't see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what's your beef? Hey, listen, there is storytelling, and then there is Scott Pioli enormous thanks to Scott for coming by the pod and going long form and going deep. What an awesome conversation that was. I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. For 117 more that are just as good, make sure to check out the previous episodes that I've been stockpiling now for the last two and a half years. And to make sure you never miss another one in the future, just punch that subscribe button. It is free. It is easy. It is awesome. It is smart. And then every episode will find you every week going forward. Just do it. We're back next week with Ep 119. Until then, here are your voicemails, which you can leave anytime about anything at all. Put this number in your phone. It's 949-385-0447. Once again, 949-385-0447. Let that ride, Albie. First new message. Hey, Jim, it's Rick from Buffalo. I just got the news, brother, of the tower stop, buddy. I'm going to bring my wife. My girlfriend, the whole freaking school, dude, from sixth grade down to kindergarten. We're going to have keggers, brats, wings, meatball subs, the whole shebang. I'm going to teach this school how to party, brother. Message deleted. Next message. Van Smack. Mark and parts unknown. little disappointed you didn't get to the BYU pole vaulter on Friday. I was looking forward to hearing the clones tell us that that injury was even more painful for his wives. Message deleted. Next message. Hi, Jim Rome. This is Carol D. calling from Palm Desert. I've listened to you for 25 years, and I want to say congratulations on your Radio Hall of Fame. You've provided plenty of great interviews and laughs for me over the years, and I just love it, and I still found you out here out in the desert. I just wanted to thank you again for all the years of great entertainment. Keep it up. Message saved. Next message. Josh in Detroit. Man, once I heard you announce that you were doing a world tour, man, I got chills down my spine. I wasn't really old enough when you did the tour stops back in the day, but now you're bringing it out to another generation of clones. Man, I hope you come to Fox Theater in Detroit. That venue has had many superstars. Man, I will VIP. Maybe I'll even get a golden ticket because I'll make sure I'm not one of those guys that shake hands with, like, my hands all wet or I grab your elbow. That guy, you know, the guy that grabs your elbow or the soft shake. Message deleted. Next message. Romy, Justin from Melbourne. Congratulations, Buffalo. The only problem is everyone thinks Buffalo's never won anything before. Uh, they're wrong. They've won ugliest city in America. They've won most uneducated people in America. I mean, they even won the award where 
most likely city to be sold to Canada. I mean, there's a reason people risk their lives going over the Niagara Falls from Canada. Yeah, they find out they're being transferred to Buffalo. Message deleted. Next message. Rome, I am so fired up. This is Kyle in Santa Rosa. And I'm not even going to get a tour stop, but just to know that you're starting this off and I get a whole freaking summer about hearing about tour stops, this is awesome, dude. Blow it up, tailor it up, and just bring it home. Message saved. Next message. Romy, hey man, Ryan in Salt Lake, long-time listener, love your show since 1996, man. Just spent some time in the 949, went over to Javier's, took the misses over for Valentine's Day because Rome recommended it, man, it was awesome. Had the ceviche, the steak quesadillas, it was great. Played Torrey Pines South for the first time, what a great experience that was, hanging out in, in Rome's neighborhood and love the jungle, love the podcast, appreciate it, Rome. Message saved. Next message. Sup from Rome? Suck that guy. Full doc, Steve. Thanks for bringing back the world tour stop, Rome. Man, I was at all the ones in Texas. I don't know. We're trying to get together, trying to get down there to go see you in Buffalo. But, bro, Buffalo. Come on, man. Of all the places, Rome. Buffalo. But as always, you are the king of the jungle. We go with what you say. But, Rome, Buffalo? Come on now, bro. Have a good one. Thanks for everything. Late. Message saved. You have no more messages.